gentlemen, welcome back to Sequel Suck. I am not your regular programmed host. I am stepping in because this film fascinates me to no end. I am, however, here with the regular hosts of the show. That is to say, Cable Sage. Thank you. Angus. Hey, yo. And what was your name again? <laughs> Michelle. Get off this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have been talking about the Halloween franchise. It's probably taken a little bit longer than it perhaps should have, given that it's now broaching December, but we're slowly <laughs> making our way through it. And I think we're probably having a lot of fun doing it. This week, talking about Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Now, should prefix this by saying, I find this film to be fascinating. And not the film itself, the production of the film. Because the production of this film is more interesting than the film itself. The film itself has a couple of things going for it, but nothing on the shitstorm that was the behind the scenes. So, this one released in September 1995 in America, six years after Halloween 5, which was the longest distance between two Halloween films that we had since the franchise started in 1978. And there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. But before we get to that, when was the first time everybody watched it? Because I can imagine, Michelle, this would have been your first time, correct? Mm-hmm. Today. Today. <laughs> uh, Sage, Gus, when was your... Uh, I, I didn't wind up watching it till probably about, I want to say about 10, 11 years ago. I didn't watch it in high school like I did with the others because my local video store didn't have it. Um, I knew it existed, but you know, I was, when I was watching Halloween movies, this was VHS era. This is not even Blu-ray DVD internet. This is back in the old days. So, and I grew up in a country town, like we've talked about mm-hmm. in other episodes, like if you wanted the movie and your local video store didn't have it, that movie might as well not exist. Like it just didn't, you just couldn't get it. So I yeah. was, I was tangentially aware of the idea that there was this Halloween movie out. And I think I had seen some, um, some stills of it in maybe like a Fangoria magazine or an in film or something like this, particularly because this one was released by dimension. So it had a bit more kind of, um, I know, I guess, cachet going around. I probably saw a lot of advertising for the, the VHS release of it coming off the back of screen. Uh, which was 96 and that was Dimension. So I, I'm sure I saw it around. I definitely saw trailers for it. Uh, I think, in fact, maybe even the copy of Scream I had on VHS that I owned had, like, you know, they used to put trailers at the start of the VHS. Mm. I think that might have had it. And I had watched that trailer a lot and had built a bit of an idea in my head of what this movie was going to be. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, that's that's what's going on. Oh, the guy from Clueless is in it. All right, sick. Like, what's what's going on? I can't wait to see this. And then when I got older and moved and found a video store that had a, a wider range, I was like, oh my god, Halloween. Yes, is that? And because you you said we're talking about Halloween six, we're not talking about Halloween six. We're talking about Halloween: The Curse of Michael Myers. It's mm. the first one that doesn't Correct. have a number. Yeah. So when I found it, I was like, wait, is this fucking Halloween six? Mm. And I wasn't sure. And like, this is still. I mean, yeah, the internet was around when I finally found it but it was still early days you couldn't just whip out your phone and be like what is halloween 6 called and google would interpret that to mean like you're asking what what is the curse of michael myers so i grabbed it and i was like i guess this is halloween 6 i don't i think this one was made before h2o i'd already seen h2o by end and i was like all right we'll give it a crack oh really was it that um, long on the line oh yeah i'd seen h2o i'd seen resurrection uh it was it was like the last one that i've watched before the current incarnation of 
of Rob Zombie ones and David Gordon Green ones. So this came like right oh. at the end of my my discovery of Halloween films, um, and was kind of made doubly confusing for me because I had always kind of presumed that H2O and uh, Laurie's son must have connected somehow to Paul Rudd in Halloween 6 because I hadn't seen it. But I was like, Josh Hartnett, Paul Rudd, they kind of look the same. They probably got something to do with each other. So when I finally went back and watched it, I was like, this has got fucking nothing to do with these guys. Um, so it was really late in the game uh, and it never became like one of those regular Friday night watches because it by this stage when I watched like I was I was out of uni like I was you know bordering on yeah, adulthood right. so all the others I would rent on a, a fortnightly basis I just watch a Halloween movie at home because I was like oh, I'll just watch four again or whatever this one never got that rewatchability so I've probably only seen it maybe four or five times in my entire life um well that's still three or four times more than Michelle so <laughs> But yeah, this is this I mean, is the one that has, and this is probably the one that I've watched the, oh, maybe Resurrection. I think Resurrection is the one I watched the least. But this is like a close second on the, you know, H2O. I, I bought the day that it got released on VHS and I've watched the shit out of that movie. Um, so this one has the least amount of like emotional connection for me or, or nostalgia. Yeah. So I'm very interested to see where, where you and Cable in particular sit on it because mm. I feel like it's going to be a different story. When did you watch a Cable? Yeah, I would have been probably the same era. I wouldn't have seen it straight away on VHS. And the same thing is weird because we're so used to it now. But like you said, it was called Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. So it was kind of that weird, like, it wasn't called Six, which is back then it was either it was a Six or it was the numerals V1. And it's like that wasn't even that. Um, but I, I think, similar to you, I would have seen a trailer on a horror video um, at the start with it, that was, I don't think it would have been Scream necessarily, but would have seen it in that time frame. But I, I know I did make sure I saw it before I saw H2O. Um, but again, it's one of those ones. I wouldn't say it's the least one I've watched, but it's probably up there. It's probably there with Resurrection, the one that I haven't really put on as much. Even though the amazingly talented Paul Stephen P.H. Rudd is in it. Yeah, I think we might have got his name wrong on a previous episode. I realized when the credits came up, I was like, I think we might have called him something other than Paul Stephen Rudd. Uh, so for anyone oh, who's listening, he's which like, is funny oh, because he calls the baby Stephen mm. as well. So yeah. yeah, that's right, he does as well. He gives. I was, that's I was that's why same. he's just Will... billed as Paul Rudd from now on because he gives the baby the Stephen, and he could never use it again. <laughs> oh yeah, true. true. Makes sense. Yeah, I was the same. My my because I was lucky that I wasn't. I was the exact opposite as you guys. Is that I was in the middle of about four different video stores and all I had to do was get on my bike and I could ride to any one of them. <laughs> we remember. Like, oh yeah. Right. But, uh, the, the, it was one of those weird, I feel like the, the mid nineties when Halloween came out and there was that sort of push of more modern horror films, horror films, particularly. So I caught the raw end of the deal a little bit because so many of them bypassed the cinemas. Mm. and just went straight to, to video as it was in those days. And Halloween, uh, despite how poorly it went in America, and we'll get to that later, but it's one of those ones that was probably always going to be destined to go straight to, straight to video. But I had to make the trek. I had to, I had to write out to um, two video stores. Do you guys have Halloween, Chris and Michael Myers? And when I found a video store that did, it was like, you know, elation. And I, I hired it, took it home, and I watched it. 
<laughs> I was going to say, please tell me that you get to the front desk and they go, do you have any ID? Are you old enough to hire this? No, sorry, mate. You can't. <laughs> no, nah, definitely not. Uh, by, the time, well, by the time it came out, like I was already, I was, I was after, I was beyond the age limit anyway. Mm. So, because I'm 40 in a couple of months. I don't know. I don't know if you can tell my youth. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, waiting for, yeah. we're waiting for the invites that have clearly got lost in the mail. But anyway. <laughs> well, to be fair, there's no, there's no party start. There's no party. There's no party yet. <laughs> Molly goes. Mo- Molly goes like, she goes, oh, it's your party. What do you want to do? I'm like, ah, maybe you and me just go out to dinner and go see a movie. And she just looked at me and she's like, Crawford, it's your fucking party. We're not going to dinner in a movie. Mm. So I assume she's looking after it. I don't that know. I don't know like what the greatest fortieth like. ever. <laughs> right. I'm just like, it's just me and you, babe. We'll go out. Go eat way fine. too much Mexican and then go to a movie and then go home yeah. and lay on the couch and watch another <laughs> movie. <laughs> go fucking great. Like perfect. Right. Brilliant. So anyway, Halloween 6, uh, straight to VHS in Australia. It was the second one to go straight to VHS after Halloween 5. And like we said, it just kind of got lost a little bit. So a, a weirdly niche release. Nobody really had it. You could make an effort to go see it. But before you even watched it, I feel like Halloween 6 had its work kind of cut out for it a little bit because it had to do, it had to accomplish two or three things simultaneously. One, it had to drag halloween from the 80s into the 90s and we're talking about the peak independent height of cool in the 90s like 1994 1995 1996 pulp fiction get shorty like wes anderson like every so these are the films that have to compete so that's the first thing i said the last halloween was in 1989 so it's drag its ass into the 90s the second thing i had to do was it had to try and tackle all of the all of the nonsense that Halloween 5 set up. It has to tackle the cult stuff, the, the, the cult of Thorn. It has to tackle the man in black. It has to tackle all these questions and do it in a modern way that would satisfy audiences that were about to step into the, the world of like Scream and post-Scream. Like It has to keep up because those were the big game changers and they all came out at the same time when Dimension sort of started becoming a bit of a powerhouse. But loosely, the, 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 the story... For those that may or may, why you'd be listening to this, you haven't watched that, I have no idea. But the story loosely is, is that six years after Michael's last terrorized Haddonfield, they've kind of started moving on with their life. But Jamie Lloyd, who was at the end of part five, left in the, the police station, remember? And she's like kind of freaking out because he's, he's, uh, he's been broken up. She, for some reason, has now been captured by the cult of Thorn and she's on her way to delivering her baby. Spoiler note: She's fifteen at this time. She's fifteen. That's where the timeline lands. In this movie, well, yeah, because this movie's six years after Halloween Five, and in Halloween Five, she's eight. So we're giving her the benefit of the doubt. She's fifteen. She might even be fourteen. I mean, Um, she looks like she's twenty-three. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Well, I Uh, I guess that was the thing when you know when the last time I rewatched it too, it was kind of like. Oh, there's got science, so they're acknowledging this is 1995, so it's not any farther in the future. But then I was kind of trying to work out the timeline. I'm like, well, Jamie's still pretty young. Yeah, I guess you could fall pregnant young, but she doesn't look – she's not old, but not super young. No. So I was kind of like, this is weird because it feels like Good it's that well. awkward. Like, well, she's clearly underage having a baby if you followed the timeline exact, somewhat exactly, and then, or she's – yeah, I don't know. It's a bit confusing. A bit also confusing. important it's to note confusing. that uh, 
Daniel Harris is is out and JC Brandy is in. So we have a different yeah. actor mm. playing. We have a different Jamie Brandy. just to make it yeah, even sorry. harder to figure out <laughs> who she's in it. I know. Brothers. And do, do you know the story as to why Jim, why Daniel Harris wasn't in it? Five thousand dollars. That's the five story grand. that I heard. They wouldn't give That's her the what extra it came five, down grand. To was five grand. Um, is and that so they recast she, when yeah, when Daniel Harris heard that they were they were putting out a casting call for the new Jamie Lloyd, then she probably rightly so wanted a piece of it because she played Jamie Lloyd twice before. But the production company wanted somebody who was overage, so they didn't have to deal with child labor laws. They wanted to be oh. over eighteen. Daniel Harris at the time was seventeen, so she couldn't do it. But what she ended up doing was she went to court with her parents' blessing, went to court and became emancipated from her parents, which cost her $4,000. She went back to the producers and said, I want to take the part. I will do it for $5,000 because my court costs were $4,000 if you give me the part. And they still said no. So they wouldn't even pay her five grand to step on, and, and which at the time was, was like base salary, like... Even yeah. even the wages of the guys and girls in Scream. I remember hearing an interview with Matthew Lillard when he did uh, Scream One. He's like, my entire salary for Scream was like four grand, like with nothing. Yeah, because that was at the time in 1995. He was on Jay Moore's podcast, More Stories, and that's what he was like. He's like, the first time I ever got paid proper adult money was Scooby Doo. He says up until then, he says like it was like thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and then Scream Matthew. It was famously yeah. tight with the purse string. They never wanted to pay anyone. So the Weinsteins no. constantly were in, in arguments with people over contracts and constantly screwing people out of money and making deals like, oh, we'll give you a percentage off the back end. And then suddenly that never happens or films, uh, according to the books, never made money. So they didn't have to mm. actually pay them, even though these movies were like yeah. $100 million at the box office opening weekend. Yeah. So I, They're I, just I, awful. So yeah, so that's why Daniel Harris didn't come back. She she volunteered. She she put her name up for it, but she just yeah. Well, that, that's that's a dumb decision if if that was the case. Like that's hundred percent. Doesn't doesn't that just lend itself to people wanting to go see this movie because she's in it again? Like even if she's killed off in the first scene, you don't have to know that. It's just totally agree. Oh, it was decision. a weird decision. It's not like she's asking for a million dollars and five percent of the profits. Like, <laughs> come on. No, no. And the budget of the film, the budget of this was was close to the budget of of Halloween 5. It was about 5 million bucks, which is pretty modest, all things considered. You probably don't need much more. But so Jamie's pregnant. She gives birth to a new boy, which is a new Strode family member. Uh, But she doesn't want Michael to find her. So she takes the baby and she runs away, uh, only for Michael to pursue her done. She hides the baby. Michael, spoiler, Michael shows up, kills her, and then her baby gets found by your man, uh, Tommy. Ant-Man. Tommy Day. By Tommy, who, as we know, is a character from the first one. He's all grown up, and now he's like this paranoid, almost paranoid, conspiracy uh, Michael theory. Myers, obsessive conspiracy theorist. And then he bumps it in to Loomis. Loomis is back on the scene, and then together they end up again magically showing up, just yeah, of course, like a wizard. Yeah, just, yeah, I know. It's just just so happens to be listening to the exact radio station on the exact night where mm. Daniel Harris and <laughs> yeah, Daniel Harris, where Jamie Lloyd calls up. Like, just what a mm. quinky dink. That's uh, oh, lucky. Mm. Anyway, cut a long story short. Between the two of them, they try, and then the new character, who's a, a little dull. 
uh, Cara, the name was, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, Cara. They, 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 they try and work out Michael's involvement with the Cult of Thorn and, and then uh, work out who the man in black is and what the tattoo means and, and his, Michael's abilities and it just divulges into absolute, I mean, absolute insanity by the end of it. Like, and it's, it's a weird film because it kind of starts to rely on magic and mysticism a great deal. And I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. Where were you guys? Where does it lie? Like, like once you start dragging in all those, the cults and the the sacred rituals and all that kind of nonsense, like I don't know. It's, it feels a little. It feels like they're jumping the shark. Yeah. Oh, hundred yes. percent. I think. <laughs> I think. I think it's very similar to Five in that it's got some ideas, but they've tried to either cram too many of the ideas and not form them properly into the movie, or they haven't really. Like even with the kid Danny, like what, like so, what's his deal? And you know, is he got a, some sort of linkage to Michael and the the cult? And and I mm. think there's a lot of that stuff that's left ambiguous, or it's supposed to make us almost have the you know almost like a red herring. Like, oh, well, is this kid going to be involved? And uh, it's like they needed to pick a lane and sort of stay in it a little bit, I think. Um, but similar to what we probably you know spoke about off air, I think this is a movie that it comes up with some good ideas, but Again, with all the source material we've known before, it you're kind of undermining. If you're saying now Michael was just part of a cult, or he was, uh, you know, a chosen one to be the person to wipe out his family to save the whole tribe, that's fine. But then it's kind of like, well, that kind of undermines everything else we've sort of seen. Like, I don't know, but didn't I'm just trying to think. So Halloween Two does mention kind of there is that conversation similarly around. Sam Hain and a few other things when they're in the school and Dr. Loomis is talking about. And it kind of, I feel like they do kind of sprinkle that in, like it's kind of mentioned, but not really doesn't flow through necessarily. But it's, um, mm. yeah, I, I don't hate the idea. I just think it's weird. It's a bit like a movie that me and Angus have talked about before on the podcast, The Mummy Returns, where conveniently there's a tattoo that one of the characters didn't have in the first movie that he's just noticed. And it's like, oh, well, this means you're actually a Magi. It's like, that's like, oh, you're one of us. We didn't notice it the first time around when we had the problem, but now conveniently we remember. But also your wife is reincarnated of, you know, it just all works. And it's like- And also there's a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy who's just (laughs) fucking getting in the way the whole movie who you wish wasn't there because what the hell do you do with him when he's on screen? Very similar to this too. (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, look, I I am in a similar mindset, I think. Honestly, I'm really excited for this conversation of this movie because I don't, I still don't know where I land, uh, how I feel about this movie because there's so much going on and there is some merit to some stuff and also other stuff can get fucked. We're at number six in the franchise and I think at, at this point, you've reached kind of a, a, a crossroad and you're either got to like, you got to double down on he's just a man. And for some reason you can't kill him, but we're never going to explain it. Like you can shoot him, stab him, blow him up, drive him off a cliff. It doesn't matter. He won't die. That's just his thing. And we're not going to explain it. He's just going to come back and kill you, you. Or you've reached a point after six movies or five movies where you're like, we got to say something like it's getting awkward. We've got to, like, yeah. we've got to explain how this fucking guy keeps, how does he keep fucking coming back? What's happening? It's getting awkward. 
Yeah, like it's, it's a- just it's become the elephant in the room. It's like, is anyone gonna reference the fact this fucking human being won't mm-hmm. die? And so I think finally yeah. they're like, okay, well, five really fucked us bad. And this is also, I think, something a lot of like modern moviegoers are gonna, especially as time goes on, they're gonna forget. But like there was a time in in cinema where you couldn't go back and erase what came before. Like you got what you got and you dealt with it. Yeah. Franchises couldn't reset. They couldn't ignore films. They couldn't even, there was no reboot or soft reboot or re- like you yeah. either made the movie. You couldn't Kathleen Kennedy it. Yeah. You made it or you didn't. That's what like I'm going to call a sequel. <laughs> yeah. You got a sequel. Just got a Kathleen Kennedy. You went, Hey, we fucked ourselves so hard. We can't make any more of these movies. So that's just kind of it. Like we accidentally backed ourselves into a corner in part 15. And Ooh. that's why there's not a part 16. So part six really <laughs> does have to address part five. It can't Ooh. like, it can ignore the bits that it, it can't wants exist, to, which is what part five. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like part five ignores what it wants to have part four. Like we talked about in the previous episode where Jamie is evil and murders her mom. And then in part five is like, eh, she's not really evil. She's more kind of mute. All right. And then we're going <laughs> to keep going. And that's what you get. And this one, they're like, we want to make another Michael Myers movie, but in the last movie, he has this weird fucking tattoo. There's this guy in a black trench coat. There's this references that are kind of sporadically thrown in about like druids and rituals that uh, like, do we ignore that? and risk the audiences being like, we waited six years for you to explain like who the fucking guy was who broke him out of jail and you, mm. you just ignore it or they have to give what they think is a good explanation. So I I don't think I'm like mad or upset about the fact that they're like, we got to, let's go Druids. Like that, they kind of loosely hung around that idea in part three. So it's not a totally foreign concept in this world. Mm. It's also like Freddie does dreams. Jason does like zombie ish kind of thing. Um, you know, Leprechaun does like magical mysticism. Child's play does voodoo. Like what have we got left? Really? What can we do? That's yeah. our thing. That's magic. And it's not something people knew a lot about in the mid 90s mm. was like druid cult rituals. So I was like, all right, mm. cool. That sounds scary. And it sounds magical, but we don't have to do too much. Like you can't make him a vampire because people are like, well, actually, we know a lot about vampires. Like, or zombies. <laughs> like you got to, you got to pick something that's a bit. Yeah, you got to pick something that's a bit left of center, so mm. that the audience isn't yeah. one step ahead of you. And I think they did but it's the also, best they could with what they had. I agree, but it's also and and I never really considered it until I was sitting thinking about Halloween sixes. The nineties had this weird trend in horror where the next installment for some fucking reason, had to pick up exactly where the one before it mm. finished. Yes. And I think that kind of started weirdly... by Halloween too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And I think it's... It's, like, it's, it's all weird... Halloween's fault to begin with. <laughs> exactly, right. It's a weird... It's a weird hole to, to... Because I think a lot of the... A lot of the troubles in Halloween 6 could have probably been resolved if they didn't feel shoehorned into dealing with that same format, it's weird. Mm. But the reason, the reason that it's, it feels like it's, it's kind of in one way and out the other when it comes to story and, and where it was going is because it was one of those horrendously troubled productions. Mm. Because when Halloween Five bombed at the box office, Mustafa Akkad, who was the producer of those ones, he decided that rather than try and get another one out in a year or so, we're going to take a step back and we're going to think about it and we're going to make it as good as we can possibly get it. 
In that time, however, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who hadn't had anything to do with the franchise for about 20 years or so, they decided that they were going to try and sue Mustafa Akkad in order to get the rights for the franchise back, which was relatively interesting, until you hear what Carpenter had planned. Carpenter's plan, not a word of a lie, was, and I paraphrase, his plan was, well, we've seen him shot, we've seen him blown up, we've seen him drowned, we've seen him, like, all the things. What else can we do with him? We're going to put him in space, but we're going to have him break out of space. Hand on my heart, that was John Carpenter's idea. He was going to put Michael Myers into space before Jason went, before mm-hmm. Hellraiser went, before, like, it was, which, in hindsight, probably a good thing that it ended up not going through. But yeah, is the, I mean, no slasher has survived space so far. Any any wow. slasher franchise that's gone to, gone to space mid like mid franchise. Le- Leprechaun's done it. Hellraiser's done it, and Friday the Thirteenth's done it. Friday the Thirteenth done it. No, even James Bond did it. Was all right. Even James Bond did it as well. Moonraker. <laughs> space um, is where characters go to die. And yeah, I if just you don't start in space and they send you there, it's over. Like aliens mm, yeah, works because exactly. they started there. It's fine. Yeah. But if you're like, once hey, aliens comes to Earth, it's over. I'm That's fine. it. You can't, you, you gotta stick with what you got. Um, so Carpenter, while, while he was trying to sue Mustafa Akkad, the reason he was trying to sue them was because he was trying to get the rights back so that then he could give it to New Line Cinema. Because at the time, he was doing In the Mouth of Madness for New Line Cinema oh. and he quite liked them. But New Line Cinema also, for those who may or may not know, Michelle, New Line <laughs> Cinema, they call the house that Freddie built because that was the film that, that gave New Line Cinema the clout that it had. I did so New Line Cinema already. So New Line Cinema already had Freddie. It had just acquired it just acquired Jason with um, Jason Goes to Hell. And now John Carpenter was trying to take the rights for franchise in uh, Halloween and then give that to them as well. Interesting, because that would have probably ended up delivering us Freddy versus Jason long, long, long before we got it, because it was all the characters were all, all messed up in, in all kinds of legal battles. Needless to say, as we know now, Carpenter didn't win. Mustafa Akkad uh, and Mustafa Akkad retained the rights for Halloween, but then uh, in another separate bidding war. Uh, the Weinsteins stepped in and they got the rights for distribution for the new Halloween. That's how they ended up coming in. So then, yeah, that's basically where we, why the big boys, uh, the Weinsteins, when I say big, I mean fat, why the big fat boys ended up (laughs) tied into it. Which probably wasn't that necessarily a bad thing at the time because New Line, uh, sorry, because Miramax and the subsidiary Dimension, they were, they were, they were, banging out like a lot of stuff they they were you know in they just dealt with quentin tarantino on pulp fiction they were dealing with goodwill hunting they were dealing they had they just required the rights to the hellraiser in fact i mean hell is a bloodline uh, well hell uh bloodline is coming but they uh yeah the first thing that they released was hell on earth so hellraiser 3 yeah. it was the first back in 1993 visual- Exactly. Yeah, so they got that, and then they did a Godzilla movie. Then they did Children of the Corn two. Like they were two, yeah, and three people kind of what yep. they wanted. Um, yep, the Crow. They did the Crow, obviously. 
Highlander yeah. 3, they picked up that. They did the Prophecy. They were doing uh, Children on the Corn 3. So yeah. they were kind of, they were like, they were in it. They were in the in the shit 100%. with this, like giving people that sweet, sweet, usually director VHS uh, horror movie fix. More so they often probably, than not. I mean, in 19, again, like it's really easy to look back now and be like, why the fuck would you work with the wine scenes? But in 1995, Dimension would have been like the best thing ever for the Halloween franchise. Like it's been it six the best years thing ever went... for, yeah, for so yeah. many franchises that were amazing. And let's not forget, Miramax had just come off of Oscar glory with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Which is then the and two a... things I want to remember to talk about is Quentin Tarantino's involvement in Halloween 6 and then Hellraiser Bloodlines involvement in, in Hellraiser in Halloween 6. Well, so God damn. There's, hey, a lot, you, there's a lot more there. Yeah, there's a lot more to the story than I knew. Like I, I did a bunch mate, of research on is, five and six and I didn't get anywhere close to finding Tarantino and Hellraiser being involved. Mate, I am, I am like, I'm being kind to you. Like I've spent the last week or so just like, I'm taking down notes. Cause I'm just like, I got to remember oh all this shit because like, God. So <clears throat> at this time, 1994, Quentin Tarantino has just come off of Pulp Fiction, Oscar Glory, The Coolest Kid in the Block. He's also not long had a couple of his films on the market that have been sold for great returns, namely Pulp Fiction and Natural Born Killers. So Quentin Tarantino, as a script doctor, he also did rewrites on Crimson Tide. That one I did know. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a script doctor and a script writer and producer director Gold, Miramax went to Quentin Tarantino and said, what would you do with Halloween? So he ends up spinning off this big, huge story, this 20-minute sequence of Michael in the car with the man in black and blah, 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 blah. But eventually he says, I'm not the guy to direct it. Maybe you should go to one of our friends, Scott Spiegel. Does anybody know who Scott Spiegel is? Scott Spiegel was, for the uninitiated, Sam, one of Sam Raimi's friends, and he co-wrote The Evil Dead 2 with Sam Raimi, which was this revelation is this perfect horror comedy film, massive cult favorite, huge film. Spiegel also uh, directed his first film in 19, I want to say 1989, 1990 called The Intruder. It was a little self-contained horror film set in a supermarket over the course of one night with an alien intruder. Fucking great. It's so good. Cookie little film, right? And it's quite good. But what this did was this introduction ended up bringing Scott Spiegel into the Miramax Dimension Camp. He did end up, he did a pass on the treatment and he wrote something like an eight-page treatment for Halloween 6, but it didn't actually end up going to him for the gig. He did end up, however, staying with Miramax and Dimension Films and ended up directing from Dustle Dawn 2 for them, ah. Texas Blood Money, which wasn't particularly good, but his foot was now in the door and he was off on his own trajectory so he only wrote a treatment for it but by the time the original script which wasn't was written by another guy i forget his name now the original guy had handed in his original script and it uh, leaned really heavily into the cult stuff have you got uh, it there angus yeah i'm looking so this is what i this is where i found myself is this uh Daniel Farrens or Dennis Edgerton? Who are you talking about here? 
So there's Farron's Dennis, uh, because Darren doesn't come in till later on. Yeah, so Dennis Edgerton, So the original script. Yeah. He he wrote uh a novelization of, of other Correct, movies. From Halloween one. Yeah, and so he was yeah. kind of in it and he had come up with like a, essentially a, a Bible for like what this movie could be. Like he, he'd written out like, here's all these characters. Here's where they're going. This is what it should be. And he like really had this huge expansive idea of, of what Halloween could be moving forward uh, and brought it in and was like, Hey guys, check out all this crazy stuff. And there was a lot of the cult stuff. There was a lot of like mysticism and things that could come in. Uh, and I think that's where, um, I think that's where Scott Max Rosenberg was like, what the fuck is going on? And things pump the brakes. Hmm. So it's just yeah, just about because it we, was it was all happening. Are we four script writers in at this point? I think. Well, we went Scott or, Rosenberg, or, who delivered the original script, which was yeah. like I said, leaning really heavily into the cult stuff. Then Scott Spiegel did a pass, but not in the script, only in the treatment, because Merrimack didn't quite like Scott uh, Rosenberg's original script. He didn't end up getting it. The first rewrite came with a, a, a writing duo called Irvin, uh, Irvin Bilitesh and Lawrence Gutterman. They wrote a past rewriting Scott Rosenberg's original script, but including some from the novelization from the 1978 original film and some elements that Scott Spiegel wrote in his four-page treatment. So now we are starting to see why the the final product of Halloween 6, the story was such a mess because now you've got all these fingers and pies. Everybody wants a piece of it, but nobody knows where to take it and where to go. Uh, the draft of that pair, Butterworth and Bilitesh ended up handing in, focused mostly on Tommy. And he had him as like this, because it was mid-90s, this virtual reality guru this internet <laughs> virtual reality guru and he worked out how he could trap Michael Myers into a vortex and take him to hell which sounds a little bit too much like the end of uh... <laughs> Good. So, uh, it sounds a little bit too much like the end of Jason Goes to Hell but they ended up not liking that script then they went to this guy Daniel Farris yes friends <clears throat> With a mess. Feel free. I'm perfectly aware that I'm talking an awful lot here. Fucking step in at any stage if you get bored. Well, the only yes. thing I want to throw in, in here, because walks... I've been, I've been, I've just been keeping up with what you're talking as we go through. You talked about uh, Tarantino's past. You didn't talk about his actual pitch. And the the pitch that I can find is it was Michael Myers and the Man in Black going on a road trip down Route 66 and just killing a bunch of people along the way. So killing it, everybody. Yeah, but like it's it's a Michael Myers road trip, <laughs> which like he loves being in I a car. It. So that makes like after five, like makes the most sense to put him in a car and him and just this guy in a black overcoat just driving through towns. Like it kind of sounds a bit from Dust or Dawnish, like first two acts of Dust or Dawn, where it's just like let's just get these badass dudes in a car going around killing people. <laughs> like that's that's 100%. a cool pitch. And I'd watch it. It's That's not, a cool pitch, man. It's not a Halloween film we've seen, so I'd be down with that. And I can imagine, I can imagine Tarantino doing a pass, and because Michael doesn't talk, like making the Man in Black, kind of essentially like a Tarantino version of 
Jay in, in Jay and Silent Bob and you've essentially mm. got like the murdered version <laughs> of Jay and Silent Bob. And this guy's just like, Man in Black is just monologuing about all this crazy shit as they drive. And, and then like halfway through a monologue, like there's one and he pulls over and Michael just gets out and fucking stabs this guy and gets back in. He's like, yeah. so anyway, what I was saying blam, is, blam, blam. They don't have a quarter pounder over there. They got no idea what it is. They have the metric system. And he just keeps driving. And Michael's just like wiping the blood on his shirt. I would watch it. Yeah. It's even got shadows of of, of um Grindhouse, obviously, of um death yeah. proof. It kind of feels a little bit death proof-ish. And I'm wondering I mean, what it re- what it feels where the origins of death proof actually came from. It also feels a fuck ton like natural born killers. <laughs> just two people cruising around yeah. America. Yeah, no, that's true. On, on highways, just murdering people. Slaying people. Um, yeah, apparently Roger Avery so is another person dead. who pitched a script as well. I don't know if that, I don't know how much merit well, yeah, that well, is. Yeah, because he was, he was, he was back with the Quentin, because this was before Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino fell out. They were still ah. hot off the back of um, Pulp Fiction. They were still hot off the back of Pulp Fiction. And I believe excuse me, Avery was in pre-production for his directing debut, Killing Zoe. Mm-hmm. I think. But anyway, this kid, Daniel Fran, he ends up in the scene because he was, he met Mustafa Akkad like four years before, and Mustafa Akkad was quite impressed with him because uh, Fran was like a self-professed Halloween super fan. So he pitched to Akkad the stuff that he was going to do in the script, and he was hired to do another pass of the script, basically from scratch. But at this stage, we're now four months off pre-production. We're four months off, like, walking up the set kind of thing. So the new script by him kept the idea of Tommy Doyle, kept the new character of Dana, and got rid of the virtual reality and the Myers curse bloodline and all that kind of nonsense was already in that script. And he's written this new script where Michael's hearing voices to kill his family from the past because of an ancient curse he's afflicted. And uh, then he was the guy that actually came up with the idea that the uh, Sam Hain, the tattoo matches the constellations and the massacres coincide with the constellations uh, through the cosmos and blah, 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 blah. And all became like just this big convoluted fucking mess at this stage. But then they hadn't got a director yet. All this time, we're now like three and a half months out and they need to try and get themselves a director. So they're already in pre-production, but nobody's guiding the ship necessarily. So they end up going to this guy, Matthew Patrick, who directed a little independent horror film called Hider in a House. And he was going to be the guy. And he got on his mate, uh, Billy Dixon, who was a cinematographer because they were pals. Fine, good, great. Now this ship has a rudder and we know where we're going to go. The problem is, is that Patrick ended up losing the gig, but Dixon stayed on board to shoot it. Then Patrick was replaced by, remember that the original When a Stranger Calls? Oh yeah. Mm. With, uh, I can't like remember her name. The late but 70s. Like the comedic actress who has the funny voice yeah. playing a <clears throat> in a horror role. So the director of that, Fred Walt, it's such a good movie. The sequel sucked, but like the original was so good. The director of that, hey, Fred Walton. He said it. What? <laughs> he said the, the name of the show. The show. Sequel sucked. <laughs> no, sequel suck. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, of course. The sequel sucked. Good. Carol Kane. But Carol the director Kane, of that, Fred Walton, 
Carol Kane. That's it. So Walton was brought in now because he was thought to be this reliable horror guy with a proven track record. Billy Dixon's still on cinematography duties and Matthew Ferran has produced the script. Cool. Everything seems like it's gone ahead. Then Fred Walton drops out. So now we're back to square one. One of the producers of Halloween 6, though, had seen this little independent crime movie called Thieves Quartet that just about nobody's seen. I've seen some random, obscure shit, and I've never got my hands on Thieves Quartet, but it was the directorial debut of Joe Chappelle. Based on the back of that, Joe Chappelle got signed up to direct Halloween and maintained Dixon as a cinematographer, and production starts. So far, so good. Does anybody need me to take a break before I go on any further? I mean, this this is a great like indication <laughs> of where we're about to go. But it's I think it's also a really important thing to cover because of where we are. And I I think like we talked about so many times, like what the fuck is happening, and so many times, as you said in the the last episode, Sean, who knows? Like so much of what went into happened on the fly and was just made up as we went along uh it's it's great that this much I, i'm gonna call it effort it also sounds like there's a lot of like mistakes being made but mistakes being made when they should be made which is in the development phase of a film like you mm. you want all of this shit to go wrong or to people to be replaced now <laughs> you don't want this happening once like 100% in a roll so that's all really, uh, really cool. It's wild to think that this was the first time, though, that that I, I think we've discussed has gone on. This is the first time that like Halloween feels like a hot property for Hollywood. Like famously, the first one was an independent yeah, movie, basically. Right? Like it, it, it was an independent film. The sequel was like it was all in house. Like Carpenter and Hill and a card. They're like we're making another one. And then the third one was like, okay, well, Akkad wants another one and then Hill's going to kind of produce and we're still going to have Carpenter and, and Howarth doing the score. And then Carp we'll just get Carpenter's mate to direct it. That's fine. And then the fourth one, it was like, it still kind of felt like in-house. And the fifth one was like, it's, I feel like only Mustafa Akkad wanted that movie to happen. But this one, it seems like the entire <laughs> Hollywood is like, we want to make a fucking, yeah, like everyone wants a piece of the pie. So I guess like yeah. looking at the films now, is this the first time that the Halloween films really started to be appreciated as the, the the mammoth franchise that it's now regarded as like up until this point I mean I, you know I wasn't really paying attention but it feels like yeah it sounds like Halloween was just kind of like schlocky horror thing that by five people were like oh it's done like forget about it we don't even care <laughs> Like four, yeah. four made a lot of money, and then by five, yeah, we're, we're like, relegated oh, to the DVD street to DVD. Yeah. Kind of so market. that's you know, history will will show that that was the end of that, and we're done now. But by six, somehow, like six years off, made everyone go, let's let's be a part of this. This is going to be huge. Like you said, like Tarantino was as hot as it gets, mm. you know, nineteen ninety two, ninety four kind of period. One hundred percent. And. All these other directors and these writers you're talking about, these are people who had like prospects on the horizon. Maybe their careers didn't go Tarantino level, but they're all people who had shit going on. Um, even yeah. you know, even uh, Daniel Harris kind of like was like, "I want to be a part of this. I will do it for fuck all money. I just want to. I want to be back in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like everyone seemed to want to be a part of this, which 
it's it's only dawned on me as you said it that like this is not the case with any of the other Halloweens. The you know two and three and four almost kind of no. happened by accident. It's kind of like someone was like, "You want to make a Halloween movie?" And people were like, "Hey, yeah, we'll make a Halloween movie. All right. What do you, you need to make to come and help out? Yeah, I'll come and help out. All right." <laughs> no one was taking them seriously as actual yeah. like, franchise thing. Like, Michael "Hey, Myers, mom, we're gonna make Michael a Halloween Myers. film." Yeah, <laughs> can you help me out? Um, does any of this? I'm, I'm very curious, Michelle. Does any of this impact in any way, like your your care factor of Halloween Six at all? Like, no. as someone who's so new to this, does it change your your view of the film? Like you said, you watched it a few hours ago, so it's still quite mm-hmm. fresh in your mind. Does knowing all of like what the fuck went into making this, does that like impact at all how you think about the film now? No, I'm just, still stuck like, on. They made a sequel to From Dusk Till Dawn. They made two sequels, sequels. Oh. and a TV two. series, oh. and a TV show. The oh. third one is a prequel, though. It goes back in time, and Robert Patrick's in it. Or is he in the sequel? I don't know. I think he's in the third oh. one. No, Robert Patrick's in the second one. Yeah. Or is it? Is he's only Mario, in Texas. Mario Bob Ben Peebles <clears throat> in the mm. third one. Mm, yeah, Tem Wera Morrison is in uh, the third one. Isn't Mario Van Peebles in one of them? No, you, you made me watch the first one, then that was it. Made you? Yeah, because the other two were straight to video. At least here yeah. they were. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were everywhere, yeah. I think. But yeah, the whole TV And even actually getting the sequels was pretty hard. I remember when they started coming out on DVD, you could get from Dusseldorn like the trilogy sort of box set, but it was really sparingly available. It was just everyone just wanted the, the Miramax yeah. version of the first movie, and that was it. Mario Van Peebles was in Highlander 100%. 3. I'm getting my. I'm getting my uh my part threes confused. There you go. That came out around the same time. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this movie. Yeah, I, 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 I wonder if you know what you're just <laughs> talking about with all these movies. Like, I mean, you know, this almost this Halloween becoming this juggernaut of. Oh, actually, no. This is a, a property we can use. I wonder if that just comes off the back of you know for a while there, like towards the end of the eighties, it did feel like horror was kind of on the downward spiral. It was cliche. It was just like. Eh. Mm. And then all of a sudden you get Candyman in 92 and a couple other decent films. And then it's like, oh, hang on. We've got this IP. If we can get it right, there's a, a core fan base already there. A bit like, you know, bringing Star Wars back or any of these other big franchises. Like, well, Halloween was big. If we can get it right, we can do Michael really well. It's just, again, obviously. And is, I don't this, know. The first, is this the first time with these, like, long-running franchises that that happened? Because I mean, Wes Craven had his had his hands firmly on Nightmare on Elm Street the whole way through, and then when it was time for that to be reborn, he was the one who was like, "I got a great idea to bring Freddy back. Now that we've killed mm-hmm. him off, I'm gonna like make yeah. the first better film." And uh, like the, the people who made the Friday the Thirteenth movies were always like the same kind of people, who, and it, that just kept going and going and going uh, all the way through until eight, and then it, it wasn't that big of a break until they did. Jason goes to hell and they're like, oh, we know what we're going to do with this. But the the sort of the people who were creatively invested in making the Halloween movies, like Carpenter was out so early into this and a card was really just, he wanted the money. Yeah. Like he says he loves Michael Myers, but he loves him because he made money. Mm-hmm. So is this the first time that like you reached a point in a franchise where you're like, we need to bring it back from the dead, essentially, without re restarting? None of the other big ones do we that, do they? Yeah. Like, even Hellraiser just kept no. going. It just kept going. And Leprechaun just kept going. And Child's Play. Yeah, it kept slogging kept away. Going. Like, Chucky was the same. 
Chucky was the exact same. And like the closest yeah, I can think about I with Chucky is they, they kept going. They just kind of changed tone, but they didn't stop. They're like, okay, we're going to lean into him being a bit of a wise ass and make it a bit funnier with uh, Bride of Chucky. But they still Bride just like, Chucky. yeah. And it's still, um, his name's gone right out of my head. But the creator so, of Child's Play, he's, he's still there. Doing it. Dom, Dom, Dom Mantini. Um, I mean, maybe yeah, you're right. So, maybe you've touched on yeah. something. Like, you know, they try to kill off. I still remember as a kid, I was probably 13 ish when the big deal was Freddy's dead, the final nightmare. And that was like a big deal. Like, go see the yeah. And then a year later, Wes Craven's doing a new nightmare. And that's like 94. So they're probably thinking, shit, we can do something with Michael. We can just not quite retcon it, but we can kind of just. Hopefully, people will half forget because the last movie was 89. We can kind of just move forward, continue the story, and we'll just go the way that we want to go and start it like almost like, like you said earlier in the podcast, it's like almost like a soft reboot to a point, you know? Like, I don't know. Well, but that's that's the thing that baffles me the most about this one is like we had six years. Like you said, we've, we've changed eras. It's not an 80s horror mm. movie anymore. This is a mid 90s horror movie. And you said they had to drag it kicking and screaming and Sean, and you're right. They don't really ignore the other one that way. Like they're really beholden to it. Mm. You know, we, we still have Jamie and we still have the man in black and the whole story is essentially like it's Jamie and the man in black is what kicks it off. And then she gets killed really quickly, but it's her kid now. And it's Tommy Doyle from the first one. Like if you, if you were a, a casual movie goer who was like, and what's what's coming out? Like, uh, Halloween Curse of Michael Myers. Oh, the guy in the mask with the knife? Yeah, I just want to see a horror movie, whatever. There's a lot of, like, mythology and lore from mm. the previous films you have to know about to even have a cursory understanding of this film. Mm. Like, you don't get told yeah. who Jane is. There's no, like, oh, she was a little girl. Like, there's, there's nothing that tells you who she She just starts, and she's, like, having a baby in a cave. And then uh, with, with <laughs> Paul Rudd, you get, like, the briefest the briefest moment when Tommy runs into Dr. Loomis and he's like, Tommy Doyle, you know, uh, she babysat me that night. But if you haven't seen Halloween, you have no fucking idea what they're talking about. And you also have no fucking idea who Loomis no is, way. by the way. Like, he just <laughs> shows up. He has absolutely no introduction. So they're Classic six years past surgery. the last time we saw it. <laughs> and they've restarted this, this engine, but they haven't rebooted it. They haven't ignored mm. anything. They've They've layered a whole bunch of shit on top mm. but they haven't gone the yeah. way of being like just given it let's more. just forget about all the others which I, you kind of feel like they must have been thinking about doing because they got rid of the numbers like this isn't halloween six this is the curse of michael myers this is not the yeah. next one this is the new one um but they have been like oh yeah but you have to see all the others you know any other time a movie yeah. loses the numbers it's like yeah you know, like the mission impossible they get to Mission Impossible 3 and they're like, the next one is just no more numbers. But you don't have to see any of the Mission Impossible movies. You can just dive yeah. in. So that's kind of like the cue to the audience. It's like, we've dropped the numbers. You can just jump in anywhere you want now. And Halloween 6 is like, ha ha, fucking got you, mate. Who's Tommy Doyle? You don't know, dickhead. Where were you in yeah. 1978? <laughs> yeah. a fucking DVD player and figure it out. We're not doing the work for you. So it's, and this is all just the pre-production. So, we haven't actually talked about the fucking movie yet. <laughs> we haven't actually... We haven't actually got to the movie. This is this is us. So so now, now this is where, <laughs> believe it or not, this is where it starts to go sideways. <laughs> up until now, it's just regular, right? Now, production production goes off relatively without a hitch. Cool, fine. However, 
midway through production, given, let's not forget this film's budget's only $5 million, midway through the production, Dimension Films are also producing simultaneously Hellraiser Bloodline, which is Hellraiser Part 4, which is being directed by a guy called Kevin Yeager. Kevin Yeager's directorial debut. Kevin Yeager is most known for, he's the guy that created the Chucky doll. He used to be in special effects. Now he's ah, turned his hand yeah, to directing. How exactly right. He ends up going on set to Hellraiser Bloodline and creates this film for them and delivers it the way he wants. But once he delivers the film to the Weinsteins, the Weinsteins want Pinhead up front instead of the slow burn that he's created and blah, 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 and they want this change and that change and more scares and blah, 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 forcing reshoots. Those reshoots on Hellraiser Bloodline means that the money's got to come from somewhere. Where does it come from? Halloween 6. So Halloween 6 has to give up, give away nearly a million dollars of its budget to Hellraiser in order to facilitate the special effects and the costumes and all that kind of nonsense, which now is leaving Hell, Halloween 6 almost one-fifth of its budget down. And which that's is the Hellraiser that goes to space, <coughs> Correct. That production yeah, ends up such a disaster that Kevin Yeager, yeah, that production Hellraiser ends up such a such a disaster. Kevin Yeager ends up fighting to get his name taken off of it, and it becomes a directed by Alan Smithy film. Which, for those that might not know, Michelle, do you know what an Alan Smithy film is? No, of course not. One film. So if you're <laughs> very yeah, very very briefly, if you're a director of a film, in order to get your name credited you have to be not really but if you're a director of film it's best if you're involved with the director's guild of america dga however if you're a member of that union you can in very certain circumstances depending on how bad your vision is compromised get your name removed from a project but it is very hard to do right you really need to fucking prove your case kevin yeager felt that the, the, the way Dimension Films were treating his film was compromising his vision and the film that was delivered was not his film. So he went to the DGA and put in a, an application to get his name removed. When that is successful, the director's name is replaced with a generic pseudonym called Alan Smithy. If you ever see a film directed by Alan Smithy, that person doesn't exist. That's just a, a made-up name, right? They can't use it anymore for reasons that we'll go into another day, I'm sure. But at the time, Alan Smithy was a pseudonym, and that meant trouble production. And that's why it's so hard to change the name, because it just before anybody sees a trailer directed by Alan Smithy, you know you're in deep shit. Mm-hmm. Kevin Yeager changed his name to Alan Smithy on Hell, Hellraiser Bloodline, never directed another film again. So half of half, $1 million of Halloween's production budget ends up going over to that film, never to be seen again. The Great Magician. So, <laughs> they fight their way through production, right? All the way through. For the most part, it goes relatively well. Gets to test screenings, but just before test screenings, Donald Pleasant dies, right? Dies of a heart attack. Too bad, so sad. Adios, God bless you, bum. They get to the test screenings, but during the test screenings, the film is savaged because apparently it's just a bunch of 14-year-old boys who are pissed at it and they don't like it. But based on these fucking hundred yahoos 
opinions, the Weinsteins start de demanding uh, considerable reshoots. They basically want the whole last act to be changed. The film as it was, as it stood, was leaning into the cult stuff. The Weinsteins wanted all of it fucking gone. But they couldn't do it because they couldn't do it the way they wanted to because now Donald Pleasance wasn't around. Not only that, Dixon, the cinematographer, he wasn't available either. So Dixon ends up getting replaced by a guy called Thomas Calloway. So now Thomas Calloway has to step in and reshoot basically the entire last third of the film. Fine, whatever. But because the original, what is now known as the producer's cut, was leaning into the, the, the cult stuff as much as it was, the new stuff by mandate of Dimension Films had to be bloodier, had to be gorier, had to have sexier music in it, had to uh, basically they changed the whole thing. They added the massacre of the doctors at the end to get the, the body count up. They added in all these weird hints of genetic experimentation with the babies in the jars and all that kind of stuff. The green syringe liquid thing that smashes Michael. Like, like, And again, much like Halloween 5, nobody had any idea what any of it was. Was the cult responsible for manipulating the medical practices and trying to genetically modify another Michael Myers? Don't know. Nobody's got any idea what is going on in this film again, <laughs> but it's got a really sexy soundtrack. It looks really fucking sexy, and it moves quicker with more kills, so the Weinsteins are happy. At the end of it, the original composer, Howarth, who was back to do this one, he tries to keep up with the changes and changes Carpenter's one and makes it a little bit more synthy and a little bit more rock heavy and all that kind of stuff. But Joe Chappelle, who now, at the same time, because he's doing God's work on Halloween 6 and bringing it in on budget, Weinsteins are saying to him, we need to reshoot some more of Hellraiser Bloodline. You're the guy to do it. So he steps in and starts doing all the reshoots in Hellraiser Bloodline. So now he's juggling two films at the same time. He's backwards and forwards between these two productions. And he ends up bringing in his friend, who isn't Howard, to do additional scoring, which pisses Howard off to no end. So then there's trouble productions, there's, there's trouble tensions between those two. They end up getting through all this nonsense, start releasing trailers and all that kind of stuff, but it's another one of those cases where there's footage and shots and promotional materials that's never released in the film. And because it is uh, so severely maligned, even after the reshoots, once it gets released, that the producer's cut bootleg starts to become a thing. The producer's cut bootleg was the original story that leaned into the cult stuff that was eight minutes longer and tried to explain all the Thorn stuff a little bit more cohesively before the Weinsteins came in and fucked it all up. The bootleg stuff, you used to be able to go to markets and film fairs and people would have it. Then the Pirate Bay and all that kind of stuff started becoming a thing. And you used to be able to just capture it on bits and bobs on these different platforms or conventions or whatever the case may be. The problem was the producer's cut was always appalling, appalling footage. It was dark and it was grainy because it was never polished. It would never be released. But it ended up gaining such ground that eventually Anchor Bay in 2014 got their hands on it, got the rights to it, polished it up and gave it its first official release on that Michael Myers box set, the Anchor Bay box set. And now all of a sudden the world can see the producer's cut. And 
it's better. It's not great, but it's better. How a score is reintroduced, there's a bit more class in it. Like it's a bit, the gradings changed a little bit, so it's less, you know, fucking abrasive to the eyes. There's more stuff with Daniel Harris's. I keep saying Daniel Harris. There's more stuff with Jamie Lloyd's character that gets fleshed out a little bit more, and then the finale takes place in a cult, uh, round tables and fire and all that kind of nonsense. So that's where it ended up. The film ended up making back one million dollars more than Halloween Five did at the box office, so it was considered a bit of a flop. Therefore, released all the territories straight to VHS which is to come full circle why we could never get our hands on it because nobody <laughs> fucking wanted it. And now we're left with these two versions of the film. Albeit in this podcast, we're talking about theatrical version, which is a bit of a mess, but still gets some things right, I feel. I think it's more interesting. Production was notwithstanding. I think the film is still a little bit more interesting than Halloween 5 mostly because characters have things to do. Tommy Doyle has a quest. Let's find out what's the story of this baby. He has a goal to try and achieve. And through that goal, we learn a little bit about him. Uh, even the real estate guy, he's a bit one-dimensional, but you know that was another one that gets his fucking head exploding. That was added in after the fact. That was one of the reshoots. The trucker, the redneck trucker, he gets his head twisted off. That was a reshoot. All those bloody gory parts were said. That notwithstanding, how do we feel about the final product? I'm curious. Whoa. I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a an intro. Uh, I think, look, I, I haven't seen the producer's cut, and I very much want to, so I can't speak on that. But you can tell watching this movie that this is not a movie that was executed cleanly beginning to end you don't have to know it's like you could not know a single thing that you just told us about this film and you can put it on and you can watch it and be like something happened like particularly the end yeah this, this movie, is a fucking mess the, the, the theatrical release of this movie it just it ends it just finishes no it's all right i shouldn't say it ends it just stops <laughs> it's just like the movie is going on then for unknown reasons uh loomis is like Michael's apparently dead again. Everyone has escaped. Loomis is standing next to the car. And he's like, oh, I have some things to do. And then he goes back in and then uh, maybe dies off screen because he was already dead when they shot that. And you see him scream because Michael... Because he was already dead when yep. his mask off. I mean, the ending of this, we can really dive into it in a minute. But it you can tell from watching it, particularly in the last act, like there's a lot of fucking back and forth and going on. It's really significant what you said about how a... Um, being kind of um i don't know forgotten or or overwritten there because he's the last one yeah. he's it alan howarth has done the score to the halloween films he's, the, halloween he's the last survivor yeah, yeah yeah it's like halloween was john carpenter every halloween film from then on was john carpenter and Hall howarth for two and three and then it was just alan howarth for four for five and then he started six so he was the only guy like Cundy was gone yeah, donald pleasance is there but donald pleasance isn't in it much. And for the first time ever, Donald Pleasance and Michael Myers don't have a single scene together. Not once are Loomis and Myers on screen yeah. together in Halloween six. Uh, the closest we get is the off camera screen at the very end. Um, so we, we really like, we, 
have to acknowledge that, like the last guy who was there when this shit was great is there. He's ready to go. <laughs> And they're mm. just like, oh, I got this other guy. I don't know. But I think like, gradually getting fucking nudged out of frame kind of thing. Which it's just, it's, it's un. You've seen the producer's like, cut I, cable. What do you think? It's a better, definitely a better film. No, no, I wouldn't say yeah. streets above what we see theatrically, but at least it explains a bit more. And there's a bit more of that. Like I said, that just a bit more exposition that, you know, just fills in a few more of the blanks to make it a bit more, yeah. Uh, understandable like yeah so um yeah i mean there's some stuff though that i don't know if the producer's cut could fix this because this movie like or i know they had to change you know because of budgets and stuff and reshoots and lost people and got people but start to finish whatever scene was a reshoot or an original shoot this movie looks like it was shot for 12 dollars on a handy cam like God, I miss Dean Cundy. Like, it looks terrible. It looks so cheap and terrible the whole way through. There's not a single scene in this movie where I was like, oh, that looks nice. See, I think some of it, I think some of it looks okay. I think some of it looks all right. It does that horrible early to mid-90s thing, particularly at the beginning when, like, Jamie is in the, the sex dungeon, whatever the hell that is. Like, it's this weird, they want it to look dark, but they obviously, like, shot it a weird way to make it look dark and then put a grating on it to make it darker. So it almost looks, like, monochromatic in parts, and then it's, like, really bright for a second, and then they kind of gray it out. The cut, like, the lighting in that opening sequence is atrocious. And she's also really... She's, she's really wet and sweaty for no reason. Like, they just... She doesn't... Well, she doesn't yeah, look sweaty. dirty t-shirt and shit. Like, yeah um i but like going from the very beginning the opening of this movie is awful the opening sucks uh it's worse than five it's a horrible way to open a hell it's a horrible way to open any movie it's a horrible way to, horrible way to open a halloween movie the weird like slow-mo static thing that they do is she's giving birth and screaming and that it was an effect they loved in the 90s i know but it looks bad but also uh the number one thing that we should be talking about and the question on everyone's lips who to baby daddy because I did my research and I know who the baby daddy is. It's Michael Myers. In the in the in the producer's cut, it's Michael Myers. Michael Myers is yeah. the father of this baby. Which a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, does that mean for six years the man in black? Oh, who we, we find out the man in black is Dr. Wynn, who is from the first movie, different actor, but character yep. from the first Halloween. It's Dr. Wynn. Only now it's the dad from Dharma and Greg is playing yes and that's, all, that's all i can see him as um also that guy uh even in the six years like he's too old to be overpowering anyone or shooting up cop stations and blowing up things uh come on now mate but anyway yeah. so for six years has he been keeping Go michael on. prisoner as a sex slave forcing him to constantly <laughs> or were they waiting were they like, oh, you can't have sex with an eight-year-old Michael? That would just be vulgar. We'll wait. We'll wait until she's fourteen because that'll be fine. Like, what's the logic going on with this crazy <laughs> cult of doctors and nurses? Uh, it, it, I got the impression from the fetuses we see at the end that this is not the first time that she's given birth. It's just the first time it lived. So that there's been horrible, horrible things. Mm. That, if you start to think about the opening of this movie, it is the most <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> upsetting deeply profoundly upsetting horror movie ever made ever because literally yeah, like a young child an eight-year-old girl was kidnapped 
locked in a dungeon and then forced to have sex with, in this universe, uh, with her serial literally forced, right. greatest monster. Like the the worst, who is also related to her. Mm. I mean, there's there's levels that just beggar belief of how depraved this movie is, but we're supposed to ignore all of it because he puts on a white I'm mask. And then, it's not funny. It's actually like, horrific. <laughs> but it is like, what is funny is how little anyone seemed to think that was going to be a problem. Like when the movie opened and she's giving birth, I'm like, did she age 20 years and six years? Or, or is this a child? And Michael is right. Like this is a, this is a horrible rape survivor movie. And then the payoff she gets for her six years of being imprisoned and had the most unthinkable things done to her is she immediately gets impaled for a cheap kill on a bit of farm machinery. Oh. Like that's what you like. It's the darkest timeline. It's the, it's the most horrible thing I've ever seen any character suffer through. And bearing in mind for the two previous films, we watched this character be a child. Like as an audience, we have an yeah. emotional connection to a child that while we didn't see her for six years, was in hell, in literal hell. Like nothing worse has happened Actual to a character hell. in any horror movie ever than what happens to Jamie Lloyd in in between Halloween five and six. And we're meant to not think about it, not acknowledge it, and then she just gets killed. Which yeah. is it's a her, her death. I realized when I was watching this time, it is the signature move of the Halloween franchise from the first film through to uh, Halloween ends. Anytime there is a strong, uh, threatening, potentially threatening female character in a Halloween movie, they get killed really like matter of factly, uh, don't care, just get mm. rid of them. Like if you think about it, so in number one, Laurie isn't powerful at all. In number two, she doesn't do much but when she does she starts to actually stand up to michael and be a bit of a threat so she's getting mm. a bit stronger she's starting to sarah connor it so in between two and four they kill her off screen because she's just meh. and then they start with a little kid who isn't a threat at all and her sister and then the, the sister actually like outsmarts michael a bit in four rachel kind of starts to figure him out a bit so in five they just get rid of her in a really pointless kill because whatever uh, and then in six, you know, Jamie's now grown up and has escaped and actually has some smarts to, you know, do something about, and then she's just killed on a bit of farm machinery. And then we see Laurie in mm. H2O and she's like, she's smart and she overpowers Michael. She cuts off his fucking head unless she doesn't. And then in resurrection, I oh, will just fucking kill her. And then in Halloween kills, uh, we got Jamie's, uh, we got Laurie's daughter is actually starting to become like a threat and she just gets killed for no reason. And then Halloween ends, Allison is like, fuck this. I'm just going to be meek and mild. I'm not going to be strong. I'm not going to fight. I'm just going to sit here and cry. And she fucking lives. So it turns out the Halloween movies that That's started true. this whole like genre That's of the true. final girl fucking hates the final girl and will just kill her for no reason in the next movie and that's what we get in this this is the ultimate version of never that. thought about it but you're absolutely right like this well, but even character... the jamie the, the jamie kill is like so brutal in a way like like since she gets put on the farm machinery so she's oh. already impaled by looks like what is it three blades and then she sort oh. of says you're, you're not you're not going to get yeah. it and then he pushes her further on and then he turns the sound, it on. He like the grind yeah. against the bones and the like, bone. Um, she, she, like she's in, she's in agony. It's not a quick death. But she's already cactus, and then and it's that like, was, oh, I'll just turn that, it on just to, anyway. And that was one of the things that I felt like this film did right is it gave 
Michael Myers is balls back. Like Michael I mean, Myers is a tough. savage motherfucker in this film. Like probably since part two, this is as this is as is as tough and unrelenting as he's been. Probably until Tyler Mane takes over and Halloween and uh, Rob Zombie Halloween two thousand and eight. Michael Myers, I thought, and the mask I thought was great in this one as well. Mm. It feels like they got the mask right. It's cool, yeah. Thankfully, oh, yeah. again. I mean, they just seem to pay attention to it. It's more than they so, did for the last few. They're like, oh, that's kind of been a important well, part of the character. It's yeah. kind of funny because I said it in the last well, podcast. Well, fuck it up I, really, for, I, I, said in, <laughs> I said in the last one that I really loved the mask, but I was confusing my movies because I just watched six. So, no, six is actually a really, really good mask. Like, if I could get another one. I really good six. mask. Yeah. How did you find 100%. it, Michelle? Like, you, you've literally just, like, watched... Mm-hmm. little Jamie grow up and you've just like, you've sat through four and five and seen this thing. <clears throat> like, all right, like let's see where this goes. How did you find the handling of the one surviving character? That's not Dr. Loomis. Well, in, I think I was a bit confused cause I messaged you all being like, do they just not know how to name other characters or is she meant to be Jamie Lloyd? Like, well, cause it's not the same actress and they don't really go into it. You sort of think, who the hell is this? And if they just renamed her Jamie. So it was a bit confusing at the beginning. Yeah. Did, did you have any emotional response when she died? Were you like, what the fuck? Were you like, oh, I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't care. Oh, I don't think I had much emotional response to this movie at all, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I was just glad when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so that being said, what, like, where, where does everybody lie with it? Where, where, where does it where does it sit in the echelon? Do you think? I mean, I mean, I, I'm, looking, I'm looking through my notes. I'm trying. I'm to... going to jump in quickly and just sort of say, I don't hate some of the the druid kind of stuff and the mythology behind that, but the problem I have with it is that was never something that was set up with the character originally. And then I just think, you know, we've talked about it in a few podcasts, Angus, that you know. This, the brilliance of the Michael Myers character is that we don't know enough about him. He doesn't speak. He, he, you know, killed his sister when he was six years old and he's been in an asylum. There's something about not understanding him and not knowing his motivations, just that he's purely evil, makes him work. Um, so now to sort of explain him too much and then, yeah, kind of giving him this new sort of backstory almost, it kind of undermines all the stuff that's come before it, really. Um, well, it's it really is like it is. It feels like, and maybe the producer cuts fix this, but this version feels like it's middle of the road. Like they introduce a lot of big ideas and they don't do enough with them to mm. earn having these big ideas. Like you said, in the producer's cut it ends with a big cult ritual, which is kind of a payoff for this being a movie about druid cults. But in this one, it doesn't. This one, it ends same old, same old. You know, the hero this time it's a boy instead of a girl but you know the final character finds a way to to get one up on michael at the last minute uh and take him down and then you know the people who live run away happily ever after until the next movie um so there is no reason for any like literally anything that tommy doyle talks about with hey i figured out the market thorn is the constellation all this great interesting stuff there's no payoff to that because the end result is oh if you just stab him with some kind of chemical and hit him with a fucking pipe like he'll go down. So what does it matter if Druids are involved or not? Like doing who cares? It, he's doing it um, the Scottish way. Yeah. Like it, that's it really, how we resolve issues in Glasgow. 
I'd love to see one of the horror franchises just like the whole way through. It's just these Midwest American kids dealing with this horrible killer. And then like in part five, this Scottish guy's on holiday and like, I know Jason Voorhees kicks in the door and the Scottish guy's like, fuck. And just like glasses him and then grabs a chair leg and just wails on yeah. him. And he's dead in like two minutes. And everyone's like, fuck do you, you know who just killed? He's like out. some fucker who spilled my beer. That's how I killed. I don't give a fuck. And just like sits back down. And, <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. He's like, oh, that's, you just needed to, you just need to go overseas. This problem would be solved. You just needed to meet a drunk Glaswegian. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, so yeah, but so, I don't. So, I don't know if this film. So where does it land off. with you, Gus? Uh, I thought going into this current like cycle rewatch, I had solidly in my head like five is the absolute low point of this franchise. But I watched five and six back to back this time, and five at least makes sense. Like the Man in Black is a weird thing, but it doesn't derail anything in the story. It's just a weird thing that doesn't get much of a payoff like he's just kind of there it's like who's that guy whatever like the actual beginning middle and end kind of go their way and then he kind of does something in the end because he breaks michael out of jail you're like all right i don't know who he is but he he did something and he was there and he did something and now that's the end okay but this one like it doesn't make any fucking sense the way that the, the theatrical cut goes out this movie doesn't really hold together with a beginning middle and end i I've seen the movie before. I know what happens in the movie. I was still watching it like, wait, fucking what? What are we doing? Why is this happening? Why are they going there? Like the the magical mysticism of Dr. Loomis is in overdrive in this one of him just showing up. Michael doing like, like they say flat out that the kid's house is like a half a mile from yes, the, and then the festival. Been, yeah. And Michael has three kills in a row. One at the house, one at the festival, one back at the house. And they all seem to happen within like two minutes of each other, which means he's killing someone and then fucking sprinting half a mile to the fairground mm. to kill the DJ and then turn around and fucking sprinting back. <laughs> like the people who go to the house from the fair drive there in a car and he's there when they get there. Mm. Like it, it really, and he also has time to tie the guy up and put him in a tree. Yeah. Like the, their timelines. That, that was something what, distracting. What if, what if the house is he- the house is here and the fairground is here, but the road to get to them goes around in like a big loop around like this. I mean, that's sure. Like, that's, they, they I mean, me... to be fair, that's the, this is the kind of story leaps that you take with Star Wars. So I'm going <laughs> to take it. I mean. But give me a scene like he jumps in the car and, and the guy's like, assume... is that your house there? He's like, yeah, but you have to go around the long way because you can't drive to the farm. There's a yeah, it's a long way straight. He's like, it's a two minute walk, but it's a... That also 20, begs the question. It's like, why the, fu- yeah, why the fuck would they be driving? Let's just climb the fence. We'll be there in a minute. Every now and then. And I think it had to do mm. with the work location because it was all old and dusty and shit all the time. So every six months I was getting pretty bad. And they actually were looking they go, oh, maybe your tonsils, we could get rid of them. I'm like, oh, do you do that? And they go, oh, not much, not really. So I think that it, it it struggles to hold itself together ultimately. And I, I know that's a lot of meddling, but I don't, I really, this time around, I think it might be a harder watch than five for me. Like five is rough, but it, there are parts of it that are so ridiculous that if you're in the mood, like I said in the last episode, you can kind of be like, uh, this is just stupid, but at least I can have a laugh at it. There's not even really anything in this that you can have a laugh at. Like it's, mm. it takes itself incredibly seriously and doesn't really 
pay off that sincerity. Uh, I quite like the way that Paul Stephen Rudd plays Tommy Doyle as like that kind of paranoid, crazy person. I think it's a, a much better interpretation of a traumatized to- Tommy Doyle than what we got in Halloween Kills. Um, this idea that this guy mm. would just be like obsessively hiding from the world and also trying to find a way to to solve the question of what it. the fuck. Yeah, like that really, he's the first character also that we get to see have that opportunity, you know, because he's been out of the, the game for five movies. Every other character who tries to figure Michael, Michael out is either killed or goes crazy like Loomis. Like no one really gets, and Loomis isn't interested mm. in figuring him out. He tells us that in number one. Yeah, I tried to reach him. Then I tried to keep him locked away. Like he's not, he doesn't want to figure this out. Whereas Tommy's like, he's been out there. Like what's going on? So that's cool. A really, really cool thing. But it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't pay off. And then also the old lady he lives with, who I thought was mm. his mom, who's not his mom, also turns out to be a part of the cult of Thorn, which um, is cool. Like it's cool. The idea that everyone's kind of in on it, but then again, they don't go big enough. Like if you're going to show me that, show me a scene where they're like running down the street trying to get help and every single person in Haddonfield that they come across like kind of holds up their arm and has the the mark of thorn and they realize that because the thing is like Michael keeps coming back to Haddonfield and that's never really talked about like the fuck is he doing why does he keep coming back yeah. to this town like what is is it because yeah. he doesn't know any other town everybody like, else is going to New York man yeah but if the if the idea is that the reason he's drawn back there is because he's a part of this cult and Haddonfield is the cult, like everyone in this fucking town is a part of the cult, that's truly terrifying when you realize like Michael isn't your only problem. Like everyone here is out to get you, except for the police force because they keep dying mm. every year. <laughs> that's that's why they aren't a part of the cult of thorns. They keep shipping in new people from out of They've town because the cops keep dying. It's like just bring new guys in from the next town over. The cops have got a higher turnover than that cops have got a higher turnover in Haddonfield than fucking McDonald's. Like they just <laughs> churn through the staff in that fucking joint. It's Two wild. movies in a row, they lose every single cop. Like that's crazy. Every cop. Except for like Ben Meek, yeah. that's it. Nobody takes it. Uh, so yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Michelle? Together. Uh, I remember like going back when we Definitely. first started this and Sean, you said, Oh, they get a bit shit. And I've been like waiting and waiting. And finally, it has happened. <laughs> so, so yeah. this is the first one that you're like you're saying this is shit mm-hmm. yeah wow is there any like uh, this look we were talking about this in the group chat you don't mm-hmm. even like paul rudd you don't even you're not one i of, like paul rudd i just don't find him as attractive as you do <laughs> i i think he's oh. charming and delightful that's what i like about paul <laughs> that's rudd that's not what you said <laughs> he has a face you want to watch he's the original Glenn i think Powell. he's very one-dimensional <gasps> This is just—he just—he just plays the same guy in every film. What are you? Like he's getting zero range. I think he's a good actor, but you made it out to sound like he was like the eye candy in this movie. No, I mean he really. There's no one else in this movie. What are you going to look at the the baby, the four year old kid? I know Tim or the brother, whatever. Weirdly, weirdly thin Dana. Yeah, she's like uh, Dana's so weirdly thin. Like, also, like, like that's another weird thing. Sick. Like, the house is sold by Strode Realty, which was Laurie Strode's <laughs> dad. So, is he still alive? Yeah. And if so, why didn't he take his granddaughter in when his Don't daughter? Know. <laughs> like this, this <laughs> film really, it does so well at the beginning to try and be like, we're gonna, we're gonna go through this, and we're gonna explain some crazy <laughs> stuff. We're gonna look Man in black. You. We're gonna tell yeah. you, and then they kind of spiral, and that whole family drama thing. 
with the dad being an absolute prick and the the mum being this meek little thing and he kicked it. Like that whole backstory about Dana getting pregnant and leaving. Was what, Dana Kara? Yeah, who the hell is Dana? Oh, Cara. Sorry, Kara. <laughs> Uh, the whole thing of her like we don't learn in the movie that she got kicked out of home for getting pregnant you have to read that in like wikipedia articles to figure that out you just know that her dad doesn't like her or her bastard child as he calls it and it was hard to tell if that was the dad or like the stepdad because he was just such an asshole so when he got blown up i was like thank god yeah and then the brother who's there to do nothing other than just like get killed Mm -hmm. while he's rooting like a lot of they make so many mistakes that they seem to be working. I think they're working so hard to like fix other problems, they forget mm. to address their own. It's like we got so much work to do to fix what happened in mm. part five. And it's like, yeah, but what about what you're doing in this movie? And they're like, ah, oh, it'll work itself out. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Tarantino had an idea, so I think we're gonna be fine. Focus. <laughs> um, and of course, yeah, the fact that this is Donald Pleasance's last outing is a, a real shame because his character gets mm. to this is not the send-off it's Loomis should have had. Always that kind of weird, unceremonious end to all these guys. Raul Julia's final film was fucking Street Fighter, Very for fun. Christ's sake. Like, Hey, but at and, least he got to finish yeah. the movie. Like, Donald Pleasance didn't even, like you said, like they went back to do reshoots and rework this movie, and he was already dead. Mm. So the way the movie ends now is this yeah. awkward scene of him outside that obviously was shot to be put in somewhere differently. And he was meant to go back and have his final stand with mm. Michael. And you, you just don't see that. You just hear him, his character scream. And so this this beloved icon yeah. of this series. Okay, I'm going to go death. home now. <laughs> yeah, he just gets like the worst death of any character in this movie, uh, which is a real bummer. I thought this one was like the most convoluted of all of them, finally. There's just a lot that you're like, sure. is that yeah. Jamie Lloyd? Is that Cara's father? Like... Tommy Doyle, like he said, if you haven't seen the other movies, you would have no idea who these people are. I feel like this is the first one that I was like kind of bored watching, besides maybe like Halloween 2. Mm. Yeah, this was probably one of my like least favorite ones, I think. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to be working to Cable? not be a slasher, doesn't it? Mm. And like you don't mm. care about the characters, like they're just kills. Like they had good kills, but you're like, oh god, that guy's an asshole. That guy's not doing anything. Like who cares when he blows up or that guy's some of, in but the some tree? Some of the kills are cool. Like mm. the head, the head twists, the mm. blowing up the dad. They're, they're the, pretty cool. The, it's Even raining. The red. DJ in the light is a bit of fun. Yeah. Why is the rain wet? What did she say? Warm. See, that's so. That's so oh, that, weird. That that's I... so stupid. <laughs> Look, it's raining. It's raining. <laughs> it's raining red. And it's warm. And idiot, kid. Look up. Oh yeah. Who who gets wet with red shit and doesn't look up to see what yeah. it is? She's gonna stand there and like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stupid fucking kid. And the whole like Danny, what's that his name? Danny story. Like, what is that? Mm. He's just like staring mm. off into space. That didn't make any sense. Well, again, it's a, it's the same fucking problem that they had in five, where they just introduced this little blonde kid and then don't know what to do with him, but he's just mm. there. But I, I feel like that was like a storyline they didn't see through or they didn't know what to do with. But it was kind of like he was almost like Michael Myers incarnate, uh, kind of a bit. Like it was kind of like there was that sinking of the minds a little bit or, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they were trying well, to that's, do. There. That's, where the, that's where the original script, yeah. that's where the original script was aiming for, is that he was going to be the next incarnation yeah. through the Strode bloodline. Which renders, like, the whole need for the baby 
Yeah, that's what I mean. I feel like they try to also, cram too many ideas into one thing. That, but that doesn't make sense mm. because by this point in the timeline, we've learned Laurie is adopted. Mm. So the Strodes aren't blood relatives of her, which means that mm. Kara isn't a blood relative of her, which means Kara's kid isn't a blood relative. So he has fucking nothing to do with Michael Myers. Mm. Like if this whole thing is meant to be about bloodlines. Jamie's, Jamie's baby does. No, I... Oh, so I took it as, yeah, I understood all that, but I took it as maybe this kid's already been tapped on the shoulder by the cult and he's the kid for that family that's infected to kill them. You know what I mean? Like that whole story that... Is that because he lives mm. in the, the Myers house? Is that... Oh, I don't know. The maybe idea that is... think it's the house is evil? And yeah. also he stabs the father and no one says anything. They're just like, oh... It's fine. Like, he doesn't stab him. He pulls, he, a, knife. He pulls a knife on him. He doesn't stab oh, him. Oh, I thought he'd stabbed him. No, he pulls a no, knife no. on him and everyone's like, whoa. No. <laughs> but that's oh, pretty cool. It would have been better yeah. if he stabbed him. That's like, if he, if we had a bit more of that from that kid, I would have liked him more. He's like, oh, you call me a bastard and you slap my mum? What about now, fat man? It's like <laughs> And the look on the kid's face yeah. is pretty good. Like that's the one one moment in the film that I'm oh like I'll watch that again because the look on his face is very much like fucking try me and I'm scared <laughs> of the kid. In that. Like yeah. Oh, yeah, he's he's seen some shit. He's... He reminded me that that dad reminded me of Biff from 1985 in Back to the Future. A bit just a complete yeah. asshole. Yeah, true. Bully. Yeah. He also reminds me of uh, of Ronnie in Halloween Ends because he's just like this fat guy who hates his life and he sits at work and drinks. <laughs> That's it. He's just sitting in his. He gets off the phone with his wife, and as soon as he hangs up, he's like, Ugh, and he's got a bottle right there, and just starts necking fucking. Uh, uh, and then I'm gonna watch Hard Target. I don't want to go home. And when I do Hard go Target's home, the best. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna yell at her about something. Um, you, you know the you know. Yeah. Where's my talk- copy of Uncle Buck? Fuck mm, you! Fight me the, for two days. The there's only two of us that can comment on this on this podcast. And I know movies are always a little bit contrived and convenient when sounds are made by certain things and quiet at other times. But I tell you what, that baby not making a sound in the fucking cabinet at the bus station for a long time until conveniently <laughs> Tommy Doyle gets it is yeah. way over the top. That's that's not happening. And then later on when they're running around with the baby, we're not really hearing the baby. And then when he does the sneak up attack, I've got the baby, I've got the baby. And no noise, and then the distraction is obviously <laughs> that it, that it makes it off camera, and then you think, oh, now they've they've been undone here. But I was just like, come on, surely, surely not. I don't know. I just thought, unfortunately, that's not. Do how they explain? Babies... They do explain a bit more in the producer's cut how Tommy finds the baby, and the baby doesn't make noise, don't they? I thought I read that was something that like makes a bit more sense in the producer's cut. It's less like, what the fuck. Oh, I thought he just followed the blood trail and that's how he found it. Well, even that, that's, I don't know about you, but I, I found that a little bit contrived because what is the timeline? Because I feel like if Tommy it's heard... Day. It's the next morning. Yeah, exactly. Well, if Tommy heard the, like, he obviously heard the radio station at the time he recorded, but he's re-listening, re-listening, he's hearing the background, he's picking up, you know, the, uh, you know, whatever the bus is and he's, oh, I know where she was. He goes there. The next day, if that was more closer to the night, he's heard the recording, he's just playing it, playing it, playing it, and he goes, I find that more believable. But the fact is, he goes the next morning. I'm sorry. I don't know about every bus stop, but I'm pretty sure when cleaners come through or whatever, someone's going to go, is that fucking blood on the floor? Like, I feel like that is something that would get 
hang on. Oh, but then they probably um, wipe, don't even call the police because they're fucking useless. But I feel like that's something that it was quite obvious. I know it's <laughs> to be obvious for him, but also as an audience, I see it and he follows it. But I just felt like that was way too overdone. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. A, a blood spill like that and a trail, somebody's seeing that and going, um, there's blood all over the carpet. Mm-hmm. I guess also like it's Hadfield. And so someone sees a lot of blood and they're like, ugh, this again. They just <laughs> move a few seats down. Yeah. The baby John. thing is the baby yeah. thing is a big problem. Oh, it's though. fucking like, Friday again. That's a newborn baby. <laughs> like that baby is less than a day old when it gets chucked in a cupboard. Yeah, do and babies survive if you chuck I, them in a cupboard? I don't like I don't know how much food that baby would have had. Like she certainly didn't have a chance to do any breastfeeding when she was on the road running from Michael that night. <laughs> And if anyone has, it's in the producer's around, anyway, If you don't, true. that's just a twenty-minute extended sequence of her just like breast breast pump. Uh, yeah, if you don't feed a, a baby like the immediate moment it wants to be fed, the sound that comes out of it like mm. cuts through your very soul. It is just horrific and you can hear it for miles. Mm. So that is a that is the biggest leap. Harrowing. Like, yeah, this newborn will just uh, get put in the cupboard and not make horrible sounds. Also, did no one else piss that day? Like, no one else. No one else went down to the toilet. Yeah, that's what I mean. It just felt like um, that's... Again, I would I would be happy to believe it if he literally clicked onto it and go, hang on, did I hear that right? And you hear him, see him spool the tapes back and listens, listens, and then he goes straight there and because it, it was pretty vacant when she was there. Also, I, I could believe that, but not not the next morning when there's a clerk that's working there, like you said, people coming through, going for a piss, like, like, that's just not remotely possible. Yeah, yeah it's pretty... Recording on those fucking machines as well. 1995, not 1968. Like, cassettes, bro. <laughs> like, yeah. why? No need for that. Because he's kooky. He's a kooky boy. <laughs> It's uh, I, I will give Michael this though. Like, he achieves his goals. Like in every movie, he sets out to fucking murder his family, and like he he does it. Like he gets them. He get he he, he gets one or two at a time. Yeah, he didn't. And he does get the washing. Like, like well, that that come on. Because if that means he killed her outside, yeah. he got blood on the sheets. He took the sheets. Yes. Carried her up to the attic. <laughs> And then he took the sheets down to the attic. But, you know, I when this happened, I laughed. I was like, oh, my God, it's ridiculous. And then I thought about it a bit. I was like, that's actually the scariest part of the movie. Because that means, like, he's just so insane that his brain works on a track where he's like, murder this woman, take that, put her there, put the sheets in the machine. <laughs> like, that's that's really... Yeah. Imagine if you saw that in real life. Like, imagine if... If you rocked up to a crime scene in real life and you found a brutally murdered person in the attic of a house and then you went all the way downstairs and someone was washing the blood-covered sheets, you'd be like, oh, whoever did this is the most insane psychopath Mm -hmm. ever. Like, they didn't just murder them and throw them in a cupboard and walk off. They took time out of their day. To go to opposite ends of the house. It's not even like she's in the washing machine. Like, that is... That's the craziest Michael's been in any yeah. of the movies. That's the craziest thing he's done. 
in the I literal sense of the term. I was expecting her to be in the washing machine when the father yeah. opens it up. That would make sense. But no, he's just he's just washing because he's so fucking crazy. He's like, and now I'm going to wash the sheets. You don't know That's what, what I'm going to do. I, I was going to say that. That was... Dishes? <laughs> You don't know where I'm going. You don't know where I'm going. No, no, no. Not, I agree. Like, with remember you. in Halloween Five when he just does donuts in a car for a while, and you're like, yeah. "What's he doing?" Like, there's times where he's just like, he's so detached from reality. He's so detached from reality. You forget that he's just an escape mental patient. <laughs> like, he really, at the end of the day, he's yeah. just a real like fuck druids, fuck all this. Mm. He's just a really crazy dude, just so unhinged. <laughs> When you think about it, though, like <laughs> Sean's Sean's just gone—he's just gone. It's like it's like Steve Buscemi when Steve Buscemi in Con Air, when he's like, "Oh yeah, this this young girl, I had a tea party with her, and then I drove through three states wearing her head as a hat." And like, "Oh, yours is so crazy." <laughs> no, what's even crazier is Michael Myers no, fucking putting the sheets in the washing machine. <laughs> that is the craziest thing. <laughs> That fucking that sequence, that sequence playing out in my head has just made my fucking week. It's just like it's it's, it's true. I can't. I'm gonna cut off her head. I'm gonna wash it. I'm gonna take it downstairs. I'm gonna do the washing. You imagine? Like imagine, so, imagine if you were watching him do that through the window. Yeah. Like yeah. you watch him carry the body upstairs. Like, oh my god, he's killed that woman. And then you watch him come back downstairs with the sheets. Like what is he doing? And then he puts a machine. You would be petrified, not of the dead body, if the washing the sheets. You'd be like, is he is he fucking washing the sheets? He he just put them in, like he put them in close, he turned it on. Like he did the he did the run. It's oh. it's and he did it with care because the machine isn't smeared with blood on the outside. Like oh Yeah, my no, god. I, I agree. It's so oh. weird. Oh my god. I'm glad you brought it up and it was good to see Sean laugh so much. But I was actually thinking the same thing. Like, I know. There's certain things that clearly Michael must do off screen to give us the surprise or the means of surprise. It's so true. Are you okay? <laughs> He's never going to be able to do his own laundry. Get no. every time he goes to wash the bed sheets. Yeah, but it's He's true. Just... I was thinking it was like such a good scene where you see her, you don't actually see her get the axe, but you see the blood spot on the sheet. And then when Kara comes out the back, the sheet's clearly clean or miss gone. And you go, well, he's actually gone to the effort of taking it down. Yeah. And it's like, that's crazy. Like, how often does Michael do that in the films? Like, if he kills he someone, ever. he might move the body slightly out of the way, but he doesn't concoct, like, again, do this whole regime. Before, like, also, like, the he only other time. The <laughs> The only other time we see him do anything kind of close to this is in the first one when he kills Bob and then he puts the sheet over his head with the glasses. Yes. But even that is like to try and kind of lure the girlfriend into a false sense of security. He doesn't, like, no one is watching. He doesn't do it for anyone. He's not doing it to trick. He's not doing it for anyone to see. He's not doing it to trick anyone. He's not doing it to try and cover up the fact. Like, he's literally just doing the washing. He's so insane. He's so insane. He just does the washing. Like that's, it's uh, not. For, it's just for him. I'm that's die. It's, it's just for him. It's just uh, for Michael. I'm gonna die. <laughs> but he. Went, but but I, actually, I'll add another layer to it. He went to the trouble. The power is in that house. Yet he made the washing machine still work. <laughs> he was still running. 
He rewired it. He really he worked. Got, it. He just got an extension cord to the next property to make sure the gag would work. But it's just the thing. It's not even a gag. It's not for anyone to find. It's not like he's Kevin McAllister like laying traps. He literally just does it for him. Yeah. It's just it's just a Michael moment. That's fucking. How many oh, deleted scenes could we have from so many movies where Michael just does something fucking ins- like he just cuts someone's head off and then just like sits for a minute and just eats an ice cream and that just does. <laughs> and this does donuts this in the car. Does donuts in a fucking car park. For, like a, for nobody else's I want to see a scene where he just like then his pe- own fun. <laughs> I want to see him like walking through like he's walking through a field to murder someone and he sees some rubbish and he picks the rubbish up and puts it in the bin because he's like no it's like a little it's a little yeah. moment of Michael just like no pick up after yourself and no one's watching no one knows he's doing it he's just like, so oh, it's no. weird when he cries but it's not weird when he does laundry like his little no, human side him, comes out him crying is showing some sort of humanity in there in a character that should not have any humanity the washing is not no because that like i said it's a it's such an insane to do it's the most insane thing he does like killing people washing again like yeah he killed someone because he's a he's killer like he's got blood (laughs) but like doing that putting the sheets in the machine up it's like he is not on this planet he's got nothing to do with reality he is not well he's so (laughs) devoid of any kind of human emotion (laughs) that that's he'll be like all right, that's dirty. Right. <laughs> Fuck off, I guess we gotta we gotta wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got laundry to do. So we we need to oh, I do. I've episode. got a I've got a fold. We got we got a we got a fold. All right. Uh so well, uh, all right, stars. stars. Stars, how many stars? <laughs> what what do we got? Michelle, what do you give it out of five? I give it um, two. Yeah, two, I give it two for Sean. Two. Cable. I might as well just keep going with the twos, yeah. I I I think I still enjoy five a little bit more. I think this one, I think this one has I think this one's got I'm sorry, Cable. <laughs> sorry again, I'm sorry, Cable. I'm genuinely I'm Are you picturing really Michael Myers sorry. folding my washing or what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm you sorry. know that's my next cosplay <sighs> video, yeah? <laughs> Domestic Michael Myers. Um, I'm not the only one that cries on this. I kind of like some of the elements they went with, like they tried, but again, it's a bit like five, a bit convoluted, a bit too either too many cooks or they didn't have one cook to steer the or a captain to steer the ship. And there's no, not a great cohesion. The fact that they have to have a producer's cut now that people prefer says a lot. but yeah, I, I kind of yeah, and maybe it's because I was watching Michelle. I'm I'm not too sure, but I did enjoy watching rewatching five um, recently. But when I put the this version on the theatrical cut, I was like, oh, there's a bit of a struggle. I mean, I I give it one and a half. I can't. I would give it. I would almost give it one, but I think it that's too low. But I do think I can't rate it above five after this current rewatch. Because like I said, at least five like runs start to finish, and it has elements of, you know, familiarity. This one is just it's convoluted and weird. It definitely like the performances are pretty good. They're not great. They've definitely been better. Uh, the the insanity of what happens at the start is just it's it's not a fun kind of horror. It's just upsetting. 
but and the ending is just unforgivable it's one of the worst endings to a movie the theatrical cut like it just fucking it jumps around and then it just finishes and loomis die and michael takes his mask off for no apparent reason to go and kill loomis or just or maybe he takes his mask off because he's done he's gonna wash it I got, yeah, I got tricked by a baby, so I'm done being Mike. I'm going to wash this mask and go home and go to bed. <laughs> Sean's trying to control himself. So I, I, this movie gets like a half a star and then an additional one star just for the washing machine. And that's it. That's, that's where I'm at. And Paul uh, And that's, that's six. And we're not done. We're not done. We've still got films to go. But we are entering an interesting point in the Halloween franchise because when we come back to Michael Myers again, we are delving into the first of many uh, attempts to kind of change the timeline uh, a little bit. We're, we're, we're retconning, we're ignoring, I don't know what we're doing. We'll get into it when we talk uh, H2O, but when we, we come back, uh, we're going to be looking at all of the different ways that the franchise tries to course correct. Uh, what we will not be doing uh, is laundry. Cue the swing by Everclear. Never said I was innocent. I won't